Hello and welcome to another thrilling episode of the Scottish Liberty Podcast with me, Anthony Samroff, and Tom Laird. Now on episode 133, we are back with the illustrious Jeffrey Tucker. He is the editing director of the American Institute for Economic Research. And in our last show, we touched upon Jeffrey's love for Adam Smith. Um, who obviously hails from here in Scotland, and he said that he was really affected by the theory of moral sentiments, Adam Smith's less, less known work to the wealth of nations. And even at the time, I thought, ooh, that might be, be a juicy show because there isn't much on it if you search for it in the internet. So, Jeffrey, welcome back. Thanks for joining us again. Well, thank you for having, having me on on this important topic. Uh, the theory of moral sentiments, I had not even read until last year, and which is kind of embarrassing in a way, um, because um, oh, really? so are you, you seem to be familiar. Yeah, well, yeah, no, I hadn't read it until last year, which is terrible, because if you think about it, if you think of yourself as a classical liberal or a libertarian or just somebody who has affection for the free society, Adam Smith is a really critical thinker here. I mean, in many ways, a founding uh, figure in modern economics. And this this point of influence for uh, English liberalism and global liberalism ever since. I mean, it's impossible, actually, to even think about what would have happened in the late 18th century or early 19th century without Adam Smith. I mean, he was the guy who influenced the repeal of the Corn Laws. He had a huge influence, uh, even within the framework of the American founding. Uh, his vision of a free society helped shape the age of laissez-faire by the end of the Napoleonic Wars all the way to World War One. He was uh, the defining figure. That's, that's indisputably true. So it's really up to people who, who think of themselves as partisans of freedom to familiarize themselves with their works. And I think what happens with Adam Smith, it's too often the case that we think we know what he says. We think we know what's in the wealth of nations. So therefore, we don't read it, right? I mean, this is really common. And it's, it's yeah. really a, a tremendous mistake because there's so much to learn. In fact, I find that having read The Wealth of Nations, I keep returning to it again and again, and his basic explanation of where wealth comes from, which if you listen to modern political debates, it's very clear that people don't understand, don't understand this, much less yeah. you know what the division of labor is. But what I hadn't entirely understood, and let me just preface this by saying this. So um, the opponents of economic liberalism always presume that we are over here starting with a presumption that human beings are self-interested only, by which I mean that our actions are driven solely by concerns of our, of, of, of our own personal well-being, mostly personal financial well-being, and that yeah. uh, the logic of markets uh, flows out from that. I mean, this is a presumption that's mm -hmm. out there. And uh, first of all, you can't really find this claim in and wealth of nations. I mean, what he's what this generation of, of English Scottish liberalism said was that there was not a contradiction between the well-being of the individual and the well-being of society, right? That they work together. So economic harm economic harmonies as Bastiat later put it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and the let me just back up really quickly to further establish Adam Smith's bona fides in terms of uh, his status as a founding, uh, critically important liberal thinker. When Karl Manger, 
the Austrian founder of the marginalist revolution who wrote his book, Principles of Economics in 1871, when he was tasked with schooling the crown prince of Austria under the Habsburgs on economics, he used the wealth of nations as his template for economic education. So it's, so it's not the case either that there's this huge fissure somehow between the classical economists and the Austrian school. It's not true. One easily flowed into the next. It's just the Austrian school uh, uh, made more precise certain points that Adam, Adam Smith was a little bit fuzzy on. So anyway, you can't conceive of the history of liberalism without thinking about uh, is, it not, is it not true that Mises actually thought in bringing an a prioristic philosophy to economics, he was just doing what the, the previous economists had done when they were doing economics well, rather than introducing something new. And that part of his role was just to kind of root out the mistakes of previous classical economists. I might be overstating the matter. Maybe you could clarify that. You're not overstating the matter. Uh, in fact, it doesn't take any more than just a reading of human action. The first 200 pages covers uh, praxeology and, and its meaning. And throughout the whole first 200 pages, he's constantly citing the classical economists, like J.B. Say. You know, uh, He doesn't think that he's coming up with a new theory. He thinks that he's uh, codifying and explaining the theory that the classical economists used to, under, to understand the epistemological foundations of basic laws of economics. They were logically derived and not empirically derived. So you're right about that. Okay, I hope I didn't um, throw you off your- No, no, it's fine. But I just wanted to clarify, to me, so here's the thing that often confronted with this, like, you know, you tell your socialist friend that you, you believe in economic liberalism and they say, well, I, I, I reject your theory of greed and selfishness. And you're like, hmm. well, that's not really my theory. Oh yeah, it is. Yeah. It's your theory. It's like, wait, really? Well, okay. So let's go back to seven, 1759. And first of all, you can't find that in, Adams, in the Wealth of Nations, but a much more, I don't want to say more interesting book, just as essential a book is his 1759 book, Theory of Moral Sentiments. And this book is kind of mind-blowing. I would say, in many ways, it's a more engaging and interesting read than, uh, than The Wealth of Nations. Like, if you enjoy reading Jordan Peterson, for example, You'll love yeah. reading uh, Theory of Moral Sentiments because it's 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 grappling with the same issues. It's dealing with uh, the subject area that you might call moral psychology, which is to say, um, how is it that we think that leads us to uh, behave in ways that are consistent with what we call ethics and doing right, doing right for ourselves and doing right for other people. That's what the book is about. Um, mm -hmm. What was most interesting to me as I began to read the book, and, and, and I can just read you the, the opening section here, which is really great. Please do. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny because it deals with this issue of, because the left is always saying we're promoting greed and selfishness or whatever. The book opens as follows. How selfish soever man may be supposed, there is evidently some principle in his nature which interests him in the fortunes of others and renders their happiness necessary to him, though he derives nothing from it, except for the pleasure of seeing this, right? So right. that's the very first 
sentence of the book. So already he's saying that others, our perception of our own personal well-being is highly contingent upon and impacted by our perception of other people's happiness. That mm. we experience joy in bringing pleasure to others, or not even if we're not even active in in seeing other people happy, or uh, uh, seeing their satis their their needs satisfied, it brings us a special pleasure, and unless our own outlook, unless of course we happen to be miserable at that particular moment, and it's like, what are you doing, sharing that ice cream in the park in front of me? <laughs> I don't have anyone to share an ice cream with. Would you cut it out? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. If their happiness, you think their happiness comes at your expense, you know. But but right. his point is that we all kind of seek situations in which there's a mutual uh, sharing of, of happiness and the construction of social settings in which our happiness is not at odds with other people's happiness and mm -hmm. that our obtaining of our interests is somehow connected with the perception that we've not mm -hmm. harmed other people or that other people aren't suffering. So he has this whole book on this topic, like when is it that other people's suffering really impacts us and how does that adjust our behavior? Um, mm -hmm. And really he's asking this extremely interesting question, which is, amazing to think that he even asked it at all, actually, for reasons I can go into. He asked the question, where do, where does our sense of right and wrong come from? Right. Which is an incredible thing, because you can have a lot of theories about where right and wrong comes from, right? And, and we all have disagreements on this. But the prevailing notion before the age of liberalism where right and wrong comes from is maybe one of two theories. One is that it's defined for us by the state. Another is that it, it was, was dictated to us from on high, that we had to be traveling in a band uh, of uh, nomads in, uh, in Egypt or something, you know, fleeing Egypt, and then a guy comes down with two stone tablets and tells us what's right and wrong and so on. But anyway, it's an emergent uh, that, that is imposed from above. Um, now, Adam Smith is a student of, um, <clears throat> of David Hume, which, who was this very interesting guy, and then also very much a student of um, Hutchison, um, yeah. Francis, Francis Hutchinson. Those were the two great influences. And he was he was disagreeing with both of them in, in particular respects. But the main thing is he cobbles together this theory of, of ethics that is actually something very, very interesting. He thinks that ethics, well, I'm getting ahead of myself, but I'll just go ahead and say it anyway. He thinks that ethics are mostly informed by an emergent process that comes from our engagement in society. So we see others behave in a certain way that's cooperative, and we're uh, intrigued by that and informed by that. And so we start to mimic that behavior, and that gradually over time, our behaviors come to be uh, emerge into patterns that are discernible right. and codifiable, and then they become uh, normative. But he doesn't think that they began as normative. He thinks they began as, began as experimental, and they, they, they come gradually emerging as, uh, first as uh, strategies, and then as etiquette, and then as mores, and then as morals. And, right. um, and, and, and so I find this, first of all, I hadn't realized until I read Adam Smith just what a huge impact he had had on Hayek's thinking. 
right? I didn't realize this, but that was that was the first place my mind went to when yeah. you gave that explanation. I was like, oh, that sounds a bit like Hayek. Yeah, a bit like Hayek, right? It's a lot of Hayek going on there, and Hayek just ends up just sort of elaborating on this theory. And I didn't realize that it was that already in 1759. Hayek, uh, Adam Smith had already um, uh, uh, sort of fleshed this out. But wait, here's what I. There are a number of things that intrigue me about this. One, that his argument is so interesting and rich. But the second thing is that we're talking about 18th century England, Scotland, where you would have thought, and, and keep in mind that he was, I think, edu educated in a kind of Presbyterian, quasi-Calvinist uh, background. Yeah. And you would have thought that a guy like Adam Smith would have had an easy go-to on the question of where ethics come from. He would just simply say something like, the Bible. Mm. You'd think so. The Christian religion, whatever. He doesn't go there. And I find that rather interesting. Like, what did it take him between childhood, where you're taught this kind of catechism of right and wrong as a as a social, a socially constructed story of why you should behave, right? It's basically right. a theistic, uh, theistic explanation of right and wrong. At some point in his career, he thought a little more richly and deeply about it, noticing that um, our sensibilities of right and wrong are really informed by our experience um, in, in society. And so then, mm. and then begins to kind of deconstruct it a little bit and then reverse engineer uh, 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 right and wrong based on uh, the social, social world and, and, and integrating that with a sense of our, our commercial experiences end up being hugely impactful on our morality. Mm. But I, you know, when you think about that, um, I find that intriguing that this book was not more controversial at the time. Mm. You know, right. I mean, um, I think the reason it wasn't more controversial is that when you're reading the book, you can't help but sort of agree all the time. I mean, you're like reading, you're going, wow, that's a good insight. Oh, that's a good point. Mm. Oh, that's an excellent observation. I mean, throughout the whole book, you're doing this, you're like, yes, 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 yes. Um, I'll say one more thing uh, about the book um, that I that is kind of scary to me and also a little bit mind blowing. As I was reading it, I was trying to imagine if this book could ever be published today, and I think the answer is no. That that if this exact book were sent to a place like Oxford or Cambridge, and even if it were heavily footnoted in all the normal ways that. Everybody mm. But I think they would immediately reject the book as too speculative, too chatty, uh, too um, uh, de de detached from evidentiary requirements. And I think the book would be like flat out rejected. Like, like publishers really aren't publishing books like this anymore. Because uh, it is a, it's a brave and bold and penetrating book that just like reaches yeah. deep into your heart. And, and, and challenges your brain with fundamental concepts that are beautifully structured. And uh, I don't think academic publishers are interested in publishing things like this anymore. It's, is it too subjectively rich? You know, it's, it's engaging. Like I, I found when I read Bastiat, I found his style like, like reading a spiritual book in a way, like I found it emotionally rich to grasp his points uh, as that kind of what you're, it's emotionally rich. 
It is. I don't, think, I don't think academic publishers care about this kind of uh, right. this kind of stuff anymore. Yeah. Which is one of the reasons we don't care about academic books anymore. <laughs> hmm. I mean, I find that interesting. I mean, you mentioned the the idea that uh, he looked somewhere else for a route for morality other than give what would be you would think the obvious conclusion for someone from his upbringing. But maybe if you if you have a look at you know any good Calvinist belief at that time about the doctrine of total depravity and the idea that unless God intervenes directly in the human condition, then you are incapable of even doing good or of even choosing to follow God until God actually puts that that idea in your heart. So I think maybe it makes sense then that he would look outside because it would seem obvious to anybody with any observational skills that even people who who are not Calvinist or people who don't even believe in God still have some sort of moral compass and are still capable of doing uh, good acts and are still capable of making very moral decisions. So possibly it's that that, that, that caused him to, to look elsewhere for maybe a route for, for, for morality or maybe altruism and not in the Randian sense, but in what we would commonly know altruism. I mean, when you were talking about what he, what he saw as, as deriving pleasure for doing good to other people, how would that differ if at all from a common perception of altruism? Uh, only it would, well, let me say on your first comment, I think oh, yeah. what, what you said actually fits with what he says. Right. Um, too that that if we're just only pursuing our self-interest without regard to other people, we won't do good things. We'll probably mm -hmm. most likely do do terrible things. So we need these social structures uh, to mold us in a way to right. extract from us a desire to do good and then that creates within us a, a sense a sense of empathy for other people so I, I i like your point and and i think that's a really interesting one that may maybe it is consistent with this view of total depravity that on our own as individuals actually we don't we don't give a flying f about anything right. <laughs> okay. yeah right. that's, a, that's a really interesting point now, on your second point, um, I got stuck on your first point. Your second point was, I forget. Oh, about how how his idea of us deriving pleasure oh, from doing good differs from a common perception of altruism. Yeah, so I think the common perception of altruism is that, it, as, as Rand, Rand might put it, it's entirely self-sacrificial, that that right. we should only be thinking about the other's good and that and, and even and to the extent that it comes at our own expense. Now, mm. Adam Smith uh, thinks that there are times when we are willing to give up our lives, you know, for some, for somebody else. That our our sense of joy and others' happiness is so profound that we can't even imagine our lives going on in the presence of their suffering. You know, so that is true. But that's not the normal course of events. I mean, normally it's the case that our regard for others is very much connected to. Um, a sense of our own self-interest also. And, and in fact, he goes further to say that we have no access uh, to our own understanding of another person's happiness except by reflection on our, ourselves. So right. uh, within our imaginations, we, our moral imaginations, we create something like an impartial, what he calls an impartial spectator, like a third person who's standing outside 
um, judging uh, ourselves um, and, right. and, judging, and judging others. And so we're always listening to this voice. Now we've created this impartial spectator out of our own imaginations, but our own experiences and our own um, uh, sense of right and wrong is what informs the creation of this impartial spectator that we're always imagining. Right. So it's hard, in other words, for Adam Smith, it's hard for us to get out of our own heads, but, uh, but we're gradually incentivized to do it and then uh, to create this thing called the impartial spectator, which is another way of saying the conscience, you know? Right. Uh, yeah. Or uh, whatever you wanna call it. But, it. but it becomes this thing that's a little bit detached from our own direct brutal interests. And it, it's, a, it's a pathway towards, towards civilizing, uh, civilizing, civilizing ourselves. So that if I arrive in the office and I'm just desperately hungry and I see a box of Pop-Tarts, um, I could just grab the whole uh, box and take it to my office and chow it down and say, screw everybody else. But then yeah. the impartial spectator is like, I don't think you'd want that to happen to you. That's it. You know, yeah. and, and so, and so we, we moderate uh, our behavior and inform it uh, through, through a, a sense of rights and wrong so that we can um, come up with a, a way to satisfy our needs that are not inconsistent with other needs. So instead of just grabbing the whole bag of Pop-Tarts, I, you know, I take one yeah. and then I walk around the office and say, is it okay if I had this Pop-Tart? And everybody says, no, it's fine. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Dumb example, sure. sorry, I just came uh, up with that. But it's like, it's fine. it grounds it. Cause I, I often think back to those times and even today, if you're, you've got heterodox interests and you're, uh, you're, you're really interested in ideas and you're always looking for a new idea that's like, wow, that's a great insight. Even with the internet and things like that, it can be lonely. And I think back to days with Adam Smith, uh, people, uh, days of your, with, when people like Adam Smith, who are clearly at the intellectual peak of their generation, how lonely it could be sometimes, you know, having to write letters off to people who lived in other countries and wrote in other languages just so that you could meet a mind that would equal yours and maybe challenge you a little bit, desperate for the books to come out, desperate for other people's books to come out so you could find a new idea or a bunch of new ideas when you opened the pages and how much people would have found that in Adam Smith. I don't know if it was D David Hume, you know, who had to go off to France to hang out with Voltaire and, and the other liberals to get a chat, you know, an intellectual challenge to find yeah. uh, people at the vanguard of thinking at the time who would engage in a conversation with him and challenge him on ideas. So I can imagine um, painting a picture of Adam Smith at the tavern with David Hume or whoever his intellectual drinking bu buddies were having an ale and thinking, why is it that we so much enjoy the company of one another and take pleasure in each other's fortunes and take sadness in each other's misery? Because it's, you know, it's the camaraderie like this that, and, you know, having these chats over a pint uh, or a tankard and then going home to write his notes while he was thinking about it reflect, after reflecting on these ideas with his with his peers or maybe writing letters sometimes and getting the feedback of others, who knows? So it's, well, uh, we live in a completely different world. Talking of his peers, I mean, I, I, I don't know that much about but how, because you mentioned at the very beginning, um, Jeffrey, you mentioned the Corn Laws. 
how much of an influence was he on someone like Richard Cobden? Were they contemporaneous? Oh, I mean, oh, no, 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 no. no it, was, it was a director. It was, it was, it was basically uh, 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 one, uh, 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 two, well, really two generations later. Now, he was, he was a yeah. direct influence on these guys. I mean, they, yeah. they, they were so influenced by... So here's the thing that we have to understand about Adam Smith. Um, um, it's, it's a little bit like... You know how today everybody's trying to understand the new thing. Let's say the new thing is the internet, or mm. the new thing is artificial intelligence, or the new thing is uh, social media, and we're all coming up with new theories about it, how it works, you know, what's going wrong with it, how it can be improved, and so anyway, it's the topic of the day. In 18th century, uh, England, Scotland, and really all over the uh, the continent, and really in some ways all over the new all over the world, the new thing was liberalism. Mm. Which is to say that, that somehow we had lost the, the hierarchies of old, right? Feudalism is gone. The personal state, ancient personal states were gone. Um, everything seems to be in, in chaos. Like authority yeah. is really losing its yeah. place. And the monarchies idea, are threatened. Yeah. yeah, monarchies are already threatened and, and, and losing power. Trade is, is booming between countries. People are moving from place to place. Mm -hmm. Right, so people are leaving the rural areas and moving to the city. The cities are becoming crowded, and uh, there's a lot of demographic change. And here's what's so striking about these dramatic changes: they were all taking place without any central direction. <clears throat> Nobody was causing it to happen; it was just happening out of human choice. And that's one striking fact. But the second really striking fact is that it seemed to be working. Mm. Like we were getting wealthier, uh, the poor were suddenly becoming middle class. There was a, such a thing as a middle class. Everybody was dressing in every kind of which way. The old codes were going by the wayside. Even things like a unitary religious control from the top down uh, was going away. Uh, speech control was going away. People were allowed to believe all kinds of things, move wherever they want. We had new technologies that allowed travel, uh, publishing. Uh, uh, you know, freedom was was bursting out all over the place, and and we seemed to be getting better off all the time. So this was what, just like we're writing about artificial intelligence or the internet, and social media today. He was writing about this topic of like, why does everything seem completely out of control, and yet more beautiful and orderly than ever? Mm. So how does this happen? So his theory of moral sentiments is, is an attempt to come to terms with how it is that we cobble together rules that make our lives actually function better without any central direction. The Wealth of Nations was similarly asking the question, how is it that we don't have a, a, a central plan or uh, an, an imposed order, and yet we're making more wealth than we ever have? So he was like a scientist of freedom trying to figure out how it was working with the purpose ultimately of saying, we should keep this. This is actually worth yeah. keeping. Liberalism is working for us better than the old hierarchies of old. And uh, so he became a kind of a, a defender of, of, of the new liberalism and an expositor and an explainer of it. And I would say the best one of his generation, that's why his influence was so uh, gigantic. Now, my old friend um, uh, Murray Rothbard was really tough on Adam Smith. 
Um, yeah, he, yeah. Didn't, he didn't like him because he thought that he got a lot of things wrong. Like he thought he was a little bit uh, fuzzy on the labor theory of value. Like he never really fully solved the diamond water pot paradox, whereas Rothbard points out that Turgot, this French economist, had solved it. Um, Would you just parse that out for anyone who's missed it? Uh, the diamond water paradox, because it is really juicy. Yeah, well, the, the the question is, like, why in the market could you have something that's absolutely essential for life um, seem to be valued so much less than something that's purely a frippery, like, like diamonds, right? So water is essential to life, but it's, uh, you can get buckets of it for a, for a dime, whereas diamonds are ungodly expensive. And so you'd think that if you brought your just intuitives sense of like, what's more valuable, water or diamonds? You would say water is definitely more valuable. So why is the market valuing one over the other? And Adam Smith had a hard time explaining this and he kept resor mm -hmm. resorting to this idea that there's more labor inputs mm -hmm. to the thing that costs more, um, which is a, um, I mean, Smith didn't actually say this, but he hinted at it and he really? kind of created some confusions that later David Ricardo kind of cobbled together into a pure theory, labor theory of value, which was taken over by Marx. And then, and then Marx's obvious conclusion is like, oh, if labor is all is the thing that's creating all the value, then they should get all the return. And right. our system screwed up because capital gets all the return. So it led to a huge mess that then the Austrians had to later sort out. Mm -hmm. Murray's frustration was that, uh, that Turgot and even some scholastic thinkers 200 years earlier had already figured out the labor theory value. I mean, my own feeling about this is that it's just a little severe um, because Adam Smith yeah. was actually um, interested in other problems besides value theory. He was mainly interested yeah. in this question of the division of labor and, and cooperation and capital accumulation and trade. Those are the things he wasn't really thinking a lot about value theory. And, and yeah, and 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 Murray was really intrigued. It's like, well, did Adam Smith read Turgot? And he goes to great efforts to try to show that he probably did. Um, but then he's like, well, then why didn't he learn from him? I don't. I mean, I, I think that no thinker can be judged by that such harsh standards. Yeah, um, it's just I a think, little um, clear. Like I don't remember yeah. everything I've read. Yeah. And you know, just because like as, as Mister. Sorry, as Mr. Samaroff there has often pointed out to me, Murray Rothbard at least had the benefit of Adam Smith in which to make his critique. Adam Smith did not, did not have, have the, benefit the benefit of Adam, of Adam Smith. Smith. <laughs> that's, that's actually true. The other thing that he goes after Adam Smith for is, of course, Adam Smith has all these exceptions to the market. You know, he says, yeah. this, 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 this. Yeah. But I, I don't know. I mean, that's... To me, that's easy to edit out of his writings. I mean, I think, I think, and there, I think there's a few things there in which he says that think more should go to labor than to capital and things like that, which people say can say, oh, look, Adam Smith wants to be a anarcho-syndicalist because he thinks that more should go to the labor rather than, and, uh, you know, Noam yeah, Chomsky know. is never done pointing out, oh, look, Adam Smith wasn't for your free market. I found these passages. But I think you have to say that like, I, I can't really say it better than Tom requoted me. It's like, he didn't have the benefit of Adam Smith. If he did, he may have made some corrections to himself. He was he he was spearheading things. Yeah, he had the, the help of Cantillon's previous work. And mm -hmm. um, But I think that when you look at the 
uh, as an overall picture, obviously gave us the hand and the fact that the butcher example, where we, we see how our interests are harmonious. The, the, the actual impact of the book is the is the stuff that falls on the free market side. It is the, the anti-mercantilist passages that made him famous across Europe and yeah. actually had policies that had an effect. It wasn't his little bits that you could misread as him being some kind of anarcho-syndicalist or something like yeah, that, uh, that actually were influential in his day. And yeah. so... Yeah, it, uh, it took me a while to get there, but I think what I'm trying to say is it's the good stuff that actually had an effect, not the bad stuff. That's exactly the right way to look at it, and that is indisputably true uh, in the history of thought. And this is the problem with these ahistorical readings of Adam Smith, whether it comes from uh, from the left or from 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 Murray, is that and God, again, God bless Murray, but uh, but you have to read uh, Smith in the historical context and consider his influence. His influence is overwhelmingly towards the liberal side. And here's the thing, like like if you're a believer in liberal capitalism, and people are running around saying that your founding thinker is Adam Smith. I think we could do a lot worse. I'm very grateful for these two books, The Wealth of Nations, The Theory of Moral Sentence, which mm -hmm. I think should be taken as a package. <clears throat> if mm -hmm. you want to think of that as being our founding texts, I'm okay with that because right. there's so much powerful explanation in there. It's like, like even today, as I said, the people do not understand that the division of labor is the source of wealth. I mean, we're hearing every single day in the United States that the thing that's going to make us wealthy is by putting up more barriers to trade. Mm. If you read Adam Smith, you would know that the opposite is true. We need oh, more yeah. trade with more people in order to understand. So like even his chapter one, I guess it's chapter two in, um, uh, in uh, Wealth of Nations, that you would understand that this is is the case. So and the left doesn't understand. I, I was recently in Budapest with an audience of like 2,000 people and arguing with this socialist guy who was like advo actually advocating for that we needed more poverty. Oh my God. Make our, our lives more simple. And wow. by the way, I lost the debate 60 40, if that tells you where we are That's today. That's shocking. Yeah. But so I thought I would just. In a former communist country. Yeah, that is shocking. Yeah. Yeah, I thought I would just clean up and I'd be like, no, I think you should be wealthy. And people are like, no, we should be poor. Uh, it was just, it's okay. But I asked the audience um, just for somebody to shout out uh, what is, what is the, the source of wealth? Like, where does wealth come from? Like, we've got the state of nature. How do we rise above the state of nature to actually grow wealthy? And people began to shout out answers. And there are things like uh, resources. Um, warm weather, um, uh, uh, homogeneity in language. Um, you know, there's like all these these weird things, and not one person said the division of labor. And I'm like, okay, guys, like the division of labor, the ability to cooperate with other people who are unlike us that have specialized talents and skills, so that we can specialize on our own thing and then trade with each other, whether it's in a wage relationship or a direct trade or indirect trade through money, through goods and services, that's what builds wealth. That's what makes us wealthier. Yeah. That was Adam Smith's answer. And not one person in that audience uh, knew that. Or, you know, so it's, it's like, we need to go back and revisit these books. And the theory mm -hmm. of moral sentiments is also important here for recharacterizing the ethics of, of, a, of a free society. 
Um, and Richie argues that that our well-being is very much connected to other people, not just materially, but spiritually too. Yes. And, right. and so, so the ethos of freedom really is about this this gradually emergent building of community, both in a moral psychological sense and in a in a commercial material sense. <clears throat> That's why the two books are so important. So together, they actually have built this edifice in defense of uh, explaining and defending mm. freedom. That's gigantic. Yeah. I mean, how he was. I mean, maybe some people don't know. Um, Adam Smith was born less than 40 miles away from where I'm sitting now in Kirkcaldy in, in Fife in Scotland. And there, there's, a, there's a statue of him here in Edinburgh. And I would hazard a guess, in fact, I might, I might, I might try it as an experiment one day. Uh, I would hazard a guess that, that, that very few people, maybe less than one in five or one in 10 people, if you stopped them and asked them who was Adam Smith, you know, what, what was he about? I think even here in, in Edinburgh in Scotland, um, I think you'd be struggling to, to find people who would recognize him. Well, you know, the prophet has no honor in his own household, obviously. But in, in America, the land of free markets, right? outside of an economics or philosophy class, how many people, even people in the upper echelons, would recognize him or know what his influence was? I think that's really, uh, in many ways, so tragic. We haven't done a good enough job. Um, and I'm embarrassed myself because, like, I think I considered myself an economic liberal from a very early uh, age, well, let's say from the time I was 20, but I didn't really read The Wealth of Nations until I was like 40, and I didn't read Theory of Moral Sentiments until 12 months ago. So that's a disgrace, right? I think, I think these, these have to be foundational for, for, for us. There's actually a really important reason for this, and it's not just because of the insights we get. I think, and I'm gonna use the word libertarians, libertarians need to have a greater appreciation of their intellectual heritage. Mm. We weren't invented with the Ron Paul campaign of 2008. You know, we weren't invented in 1972 when the Libertarian Party was founded. You know, we, we weren't in, our roots go way back and like yeah. direct intellectual lineage, our four bearers, fought so hard for things like free trade or coming up with a theory of how society works on its own without top-down imposition. Um, where does wealth come from? A very interesting subject. Aristotle never figured it out. The liberal tradition finally did figure it out. Why religious freedom is a better solution mm -hmm. to society than, than imposition from above. These are all fundamental questions that were that were worked out by Adam Smith and his forebears and his successors. But we need to have a better sense of understanding that we fall in a long right. tradition and that and that that our ideology wasn't wasn't hatched in the meme wars of 2014. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's good. I think that's really important too, because you know, old lefties, as we call them in Scotland they believe that they're part of an ongoing class struggle that mm. has lasted centuries and that gives them navigation they look in the past and they think yeah we got the five-day work week and we got workplace safety and 
all mm. these achievements they That's believe true. that have been part of a class struggle. Now, obviously, as free marketeers, we say, oh, no, it was the it was capitalism that gave you that. It made your labor worth more so that your boss could give you a, um, a 37 hour a week. Um, now, the, but they but you're right about that. We need our own story. And yes. we don't have a story. You're yeah. right. The left has this long story, right? Yes, and so does the right, and so does the right. Oh, tradition. Well, yeah. You know, we've been hand, you know, tradition, that uh, whatever conservatives, all conservatives have a narrative of how history has been and how it should be that they can fit themselves into right. as conservatives. And I think that I appreciate your emphasis on this point in recent years that we should see ourselves as par part of a tradition as a proud tradition some libertarians have said i hate it when people say that we are economically liberal and socially uh, sorry it's, uh, economically conservative and socially liberal because that divorces us from history that divorces us from being a distinct ideology mm -hmm. that has taken heart that has actually been tempered right you know, uh, you, you're pointing, you were talking about how Mises corrected errors. Um, through this lineage, the Austrian school and before that, the classical economists, people were, point, were refining ideas in a mill. You know, uh, Locke said we can accept all religions, but we can't accept atheism because then, you know, people's oaths will mean nothing in court. And then Jeff Jefferson came along and said, no, that's ridiculous. We can accept atheists too. And this has been a process of tempering our ideas over centuries. And when we see ourselves as having these ideas bequeathed to us, we can see ourselves as standing on the, on the shoulders of giants, bringing something new on top of that, bringing the message to this world at the vanguard, not late to the party, because there's something about to happen. You know, we're at the beginning of something that's, you know, a few hundred years old and we can like penetrate the future with our ideas. Right, right. so the authority collapses, liberalism explained why this isn't a bad thing, that religious heterogeneity works better than religious wars. Um, mm. Governments were unable to censor uh, uh, books anymore because the technology got too good and the liberals were there to say, hey, this is okay, we, we, shouldn't, have we shouldn't have censorship. It's okay to have chaotic ideas all over the place. And, and actually, it was liberalism that broke down slavery. You know, I mean, it, it, we argued that everybody should have equal freedom. And guys like Carlyle were saying, are you out of your mind? Do you have any idea what kind of uh, hell that's going to unleash? And and so he and John Stuart Mill had a huge breakup in their friendship over this. And that's when Carlyle said, oh, well, you 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 bastards are just advancing um, a, uh, uh, he called economics the dismal science uh, be because it was because it was against slavery. Right? That's just yeah. a dismal view of the world. Equal freedom, that's the worst thing I ever heard. We have to have hierarchy and great men lording it over serfs and slaves or else our society is going to collapse. But we pushed back against that. And it was the same thing with uh, equal freedom applying also to, to women and their right to own property and sign contracts. And it was liberalism that br uh, brought that to the world, broke down uh, barriers for, for trade. And so all the things that we think of as being human rights today were things that were gradually uh, uh, realized by, by the liberal camp and fought for by the liberal camp. And so here's the thing also, and that really is probably the most profound contribution of liberalism, 
is that we gradually realized the most important work we could ever do is to build some kind of wall, a tech, some kind of technology to uh, shield the rest of society from the, from the potentially baneful influence of the state. So we came up with things like constitutions and bills of rights and um, <clears throat> all kinds of limitations on state power, uh, contracts that we made the king sign, uh, all these things to stop the state from intervening. So if you believe, if you come to this gradual belief that society works on its own, which is the essence of what liberal creed is, then you realize that the, every intervention by the state against society is potentially baneful and harmful relative to what it would have been otherwise. So then you're convicted to right. drive, uh, to put a wall between the influence of the state and the operation of society. So then you're against mercantilism and protectionism and censorship and uh, uh, harsh penal codes and so, and then you're for trial by jury and so on. So everything follows from that. So you've got this huge right. um, uh, desire on the part of liberalism to to in, to come up with a technology of, of that limit state power, you know, whatever form it may take. And it doesn't always work, but we've been working on it now for like for like three hundred years or something like this. And it's, yeah. it's liberalism that did this. I mean, compared to leftism and rightism, these guys have done nothing but hold back history. We've been yeah. trying to uh, permit the freedom to, to, to have progress in, in human rights, to have an expanded sense of human dignity, a flourishing of, of everyone without regard to class, race, creed, uh, or religion, and, or a country of origin, and so on. I mean, we've been the ones who've been breaking down the barriers, and we should feel a sense of pride in that, and we should own that, and say we should continue this tradition. Amen. Yeah. Amen, yes. So another point that I saw you stitching together, um, I was sorry, I was barely holding back my desire to say, and in the interests of continuing the liberal, the tradition of liberalism, <laughs> here's my here's my book. You yeah, I believe so. you've got a new book out, Anthony. It's yeah. again come born again. Oh, talking good. about looking forward to books. Yeah. Uh, pick out yours as well, Jeffrey, and show it off. Oh, I don't have it with me, but it's called... I shouldn't have a copy. Oh, no, what a faux pas. Right. <laughs> it's called, it's called the, the Market Loves You, Why You Should Love It Back. That's my new book. Oh, great. I didn't know that you... I didn't Fantastic know that you'd really, title. Is it, I, I love it. Okay. I didn't realize that you had a new one. I'm going to have yeah, to... Yeah, yeah. It's called The Market Loves You, and it's and it's all about all the funny ways in which we're surrounded by the benevolence of the market, and I'm gonna have to, we need to see that as a form of love. It's a form of love, and that that implies an obligation back that we should have a, a great affection for it, appreciation for so. all of the market. I love that. Could I ask another question The market is sort of things that we take for granted. Or are you, are you, have you got something, Anthony? I would like to ask another one. I've got another question, sure. but you can go first. I'm ha I'm okay. Um, just we we had um, we were privileged actually to have Nima Sanandaji uh, on our show uh, a couple of years back after he'd just written his book Debunking Utopia um, about uh, people's people's misconceptions about uh, Sweden, and he told it. And I'd never heard of the the, the person he was talking about at the time, but he talked about Anders Chydenius, who was a Swedish uh, economist and priest. And his influence on in Adam Smith. However, uh, I don't know. I mean, did he influence Smith? Was Smith even aware of his existence, or is this something that people have cobbled together now because they seem to have similar ideas about things? I, I wouldn't know the answer to that. I mean, there's. Uh, okay. I'm not a, a Smith uh, expert, though. I would like to be. Here in my office, like right down the hall, 
we have this collection of Adam Smith works. It's like this big. Okay. And I've read like this much. All and, right. And I'm mortified that there's like this much more I haven't read. <laughs> it's like, oh no. So I've got a lot of reading to do. Okay, right. fair enough. Anthony, roll. Yeah, I was just trying to bring out that parallel between that seems to exist between Smith's observation of how markets work and the fact that there is a spontaneous order there and that one of the benefits of the market that I'm never done trying to point out to people is that ideas are tested in the small scale and then they're spread by memetics. If it's a good idea, more people buy the product and it sp spreads organically. Whereas when we have a central plan, the government is basically experimenting on us, throwing a dart uh, in a random direction, hoping there's a dartboard somewhere with a blindfold on. Whereas ideas can get tested and mixed with each other and cross-pollinated on the market to right. the extent where there aren't ridiculous mm. um, right. copyright and, 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 and intellectual actually, property laws. Is, yeah, this is implied uh, a lot in Adam Smith, actually, that that uh, this experimental process, the, the main virtue of which is to get rid of the things that don't work. Right. So this is the big problem with state regulation, is that once... Uh, there's a decision. First of all, there's a presumption of knowledge behind every single law. Like yeah. they know exactly right the right way forward. In this case, we don't actually know the right way forward. Right. So that's already a lie. And then it gets worse because they they know, but then they impose it by a threat of violence. And right. Like, and now they've got uh, interest groups built uh, built around uh, sustaining that mm. same. Yes. So you can't get rid of it. So the evolutionary. Uh, quality of life that you expect under freedom just com completely vanishes. And then it's like you're playing with Legos and somebody comes along and glues down all the pieces. Okay, it's not going right. to be interesting anymore. Yes. Uh, yeah. A good, good metaphor. And so I see the similarity between that economic notion and the wealth of nations and what mm -hmm. I've heard you imply as to the theory of moral sentiments, yeah. where he's saying there's this discovery process, much like the market. Um, in the discovery of morals. Uh, yeah. Obviously, other people like Lysander Spooner thought that uh, we are discovering moral law, that the moral law is a science and has to be, and we have to discover the moral law. I, I don't know how many other people thought that. Uh, I'm not that massive a historian of ideas and that, um, and certainly not those kinds of ideas. Maybe you know something more about well, there's, it there's than I do. also implied, and, and I hope this isn't, taking away from your core point too much, but there's there's an implication that you get in the theory of moral sediments. That is that the more prosperity you have, uh, the more choice you have, and the mm -hmm. more opportunities you have, and therefore the more refined your sense of what to do with those opportunities can be, and the more complex your your moral and ethical systems are. So if you, if you could somehow roll back our material prosperity uh, far enough, what you're actually doing is disabling our opportunities to have practical morals. So if we right. get hungry enough, you're, you're going to be inclined to steal. I mean, if right. you get hungry enough, I'm going to eat you. Right. So you, know, yeah. you take away material prosperity, and then you take away opportunities for, for, for uh, practicable morals. And, and, then, and, and, and if your morals are not operational, then I don't know in what sense you could even call them morals. Maybe they, they just become just pure abstractions, but they don't mean anything in real life. But with the growth of commercial society, 
now you have more opportunity. You don't have to steal as much. You don't have to kill as much. You can actually begin to cultivate um, uh, a civilized life. <clears throat> and so then that, that way you get this ever-evolving uh, complex set of codes. So it's really interesting because people, like I have no problem telling people that, that I identify as, as an anarchist, like in, a, in an intellectual sense, I have no problem. I wouldn't have a problem with getting rid of the state. They say, oh, you don't believe in rules. It's exactly the opposite. Uh, the less the state in, intervenes in society, the more prosperous uh, society becomes, and the more opportunities there are for everybody, and the more choices we face, and the more incentivized we are to put together uh, mores, rules, norms, and ethics to govern our behavior. And and yeah. I think you see, you see this actually in all kinds of societies where the state is less involved. That the less the state is involved, the more society rises up to put together ethical systems. In fact, I think one of the one of the great, it's a funny failing of freedom. I think, w if anything, we are inclined to make too many rules for ourselves in absence mm. of the state. I mean, it's actually funny. Like, if you look at any of the um, super prosperous, but uh, societies where the state intervened as little as possible. You think about something like late 19th century England or Guild America and the Gilded Age, you know, uh, or the colonial times in America and that sort of thing. Um, what you find are actually a lot of people um, uh, feeling oppressed by uh, too much imposition from the social order, like too many cultural controls. Like we're really, really good at making rules for ourselves, especially when the state goes away. So I, I'm not saying that's a market failure. I'm just saying that it is a fact that the less the state intervenes, the more opportunities yeah. we have for codifying our own moral uh, behavior. And I think that that is one of the implications behind the theory of moral sentiments. Because I was in a seminar about this thing and I came up with this criticism. I said to the guy who was directing the seminar, how do we know that Smith's description of common moral psychology isn't just a reflection of a particular time and place in late 18th century England, right? Where uh, the arist aristocratic, um, uh, where the noble sentiments of love for your neighbor began to kind of trickle down ever more and invade the middle class. So that, yes, it was an empirical description, but it's not a universal description. It just pertains mm -hmm. to time and place. So his answer was that that might be true in a way, but he, what he's trying to do is offer an evolved theory of morals that pertains to an increasingly prosperous society, which is the world in which he lived. So yeah, it's probably true that under desperate poverty, you're not going to see the same kind of moral psychology operating among uh, average people, but mm -hmm. as society grows more prosperous, then you're gonna start seeing more empathy, uh, uh, more compassion, uh, taking place and so on and so on. Do you think? Um, do you think that has happened? Uh, has his prediction on that been correct? I I would yes, I would say that is undoubtedly true. And in fact, but with the the elevation of morality, which we've we've seen, you, know, I mean, you can even look at it in the data. There's less killing mm -hmm. than ever. There's fewer the wars than ever, and so on. But so too, in the same sense that we're never quite satisfied with our material prosperity, that we right. want more and more. In that same way, we're never quite satisfied with our moral systems either. Right. Yeah. So we, we have, yeah. 
this ever yeah. higher uh, demand for more justice, more equality, you know, uh, more non-discrimination, more spreading of the wealth, and so on. So the wealthier we get, the more higher our expectations get for for right, right. a better society. Is kind of clicking together with maybe some of the phenomenon going on in society that we don't necessarily support you know the use of the state to enforce these ever-increasing moral values and right. to say that you know saying that people who live in a standard of living that's unrecognizable to anyone that lived in adam smith's day is impoverished so uh, oh, you're right. Like I think about Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, uh, you know, in a video about mm. four or five months ago, said in passing that she doesn't, she actually has doubts whether or not uh, she, she or anyone should ever have children because uh, they're going to bring them into a world that's going to be um, a, a horrifying world of global warming and suffering uh, for humanity and that we have to fix this problem so that we can be incentivized to have children. Now, I find that a grotesque comment, but... Yeah. What's most interesting about that to me is this presumption that just having children is a choice you can make. In Adam Smith's time, most kids, meaning three to four out of five, were dead before the age of two. Mm. I mean, you are really extremely lucky if you ever had, if you had four kids and one lived to adulthood. So the fact that she could just casually throw out that this idea that, oh, maybe I'll have a kid or maybe I won't. That wasn't even a choice yeah. 200 years ago. Yeah. People don't know how lucky they are. I so don't know they're born. The, the, uh, the award-winning comment for an audience was Adam Smith is the new favorite pop tar flav tart flavor. <laughs> <laughs> He's wonderful. We need to yeah. the, We need the Adam Smith pop tart covered packaging. There you go. Perfect. <laughs> there on your. So his new book is The Market Loves You mm -hmm. and You Should Love It. Is it a collection of essays? It's a collection of essays. I tried to integrate them into celebrations of um, not just new technology, but old technology, things like iron skillets and mechanical clocks and uh, hand wound phonograph records, the invention of pants. You know, mm. like I really try to go back through the whole uh, history of the, all the things that markets have given. It's us. something that I've commented on that uh, changed when I when I went from being a lefty to being a free marketeer. I could go into a big superstore and not think oh, look, they're exploiting people and just think, wow, how amazing is it that all this stuff has come from all over the world for me? That's and it makes me feel so good when you understand that, that the interests of people are harmonious or at least potentially harmonious. So thanks very much. Your last appearance on our show was very popular on iTunes. So it's great to have you back again. It's really been and, fun. And thank you for such a creative topic. I really get excited about new things like this. So thank oh, you. Oh, wonderful. Good. Thank you. It's really a pleasure yeah. for you. Thank you so much. Me too. Thanks, everyone at home, for tuning in, and we'll see you.